0: Entertainment.
1: During this time, as folks are choosing to stay home, NovaCare Rehabilitation is offering tele rehab right from the comfort of your home. For more information, go to NovaCare.com. NovaCare, the power of physical therapy. 1,048 miles from where Veteran Stadium stood in South Philadelphia is the Houston Astrodome.
2: You drive up on it, and it, you know, Houston's pretty flat, and all of a sudden there's this this big old dome, and you go into it, and she, (laughs) the dome has had many hard years on her, and there's
1: definitely a smell when you go
2: in there, but we loved it.
1: That's Bruce Matthews, a member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Bruce started his football career with the Houston Oilers, He even stayed with the team after they relocated to Tennessee and became the Titans. But sit tight, we'll be coming back to the Astrodome. Welcome to Return Game, House of Pain game presented by Novacare Rehabilitation. This is the story of one of the greatest clashes in Eagles history. I'm your host, Rob Ellis. In this series, we hear from players and coaches from the Philadelphia Eagles and the Houston Oilers who were part of the battle. In this episode, we head to Houston, to see how the high-flying Oilers offense was preparing to combat the Eagles' punishing defense. Let's go!
3: As far as what was going on in Houston in 1991, is the same things going on today. There's a lot of traffic, there's humidity, people are moving in here like crazy, the population was going up, skyrocketing.
1: If it's sports-related and happening in Houston, chances are John McClain will know about it. John is a Houston Chronicle reporter and is in his 44th season covering the NFL.
3: People were football crazy at the time. Uh, the Astros were okay, the Rockets were okay, but the Oilers, everybody thought at the time were a legitimate Super Bowl team for the first time since 1979 and 80, the Love You Blue era under Bum Phillips and Earl Campbell.
1: Football fans in the Lone Star State might just be as passionate as Eagles fans. Tom Landry, the Cowboys head coach for 28 years, said, football is to Texas what religion is to a priest. And in 1991, that pigskin passion showed no signs of waning.
0: Houston's an oil town. Um, it's a, a blue-collar town is the way I would describe it. It's a town that is, loves its football, loved the Houston Oilers. At the time, it was a town that had not had a championship Uh, Since 1963 back when the Oilers were an AFL champion, so they really hadn't had any champions and that's across Basketball football pick your sport, you know, Houston was always the the city that was the little brother to Dallas unfortunately and Compounding that with uh, 1991. There was a slight recession a a lot of folks that uh, if you were around back then you remember it and jobs were tight it was a time where the city needed an uplift, I think, and uh, and I think the Houston Oilers were the team to do it.
1: The man who fans hoped would get the Oilers to the finish line was Gentleman Jack Pardee. That was John McClain's nickname for him. Jack Pardee passed away in 2013, so Jack's son, Ted, is telling his dad's story.
0: My father grew up in, he was born in the late 1930s. He, you know, grew up kind of all around West Texas. My father went to a a school that was truly a one-room schoolhouse. and It was like first grade to 12th grade to high school and all the students were in a single building in a single room. Uh, He had a dozen classmates that were in his grade and ended up playing six-man football in high school and it's predominantly a, a sport that's played in in the South and specifically in Texas in towns that don't have enough students in the school. My dad was was one of the first, uh, if not the only, six-man high school football player to go on to play in the NFL.
1: Jack Party played and coached in the NFL for years. This included a stint as the head coach for the Washington Redskins. He left the league for a short period of time as head coach of the University of Houston, where he even coached his son Ted for a while. But Jack felt that pull back to his hometown team. One of the coaches helping Jack Party turn the Oilers into an offensive powerhouse was this guy.
4: Hi, I'm Kevin Gilbride, uh, and I was the offense coordinator with the Houston Oilers back in 1991. I joined the Oilers in 89 and stayed with them right up through 1994. We always had great fan support. Texas is a great uh, Great state in terms of supporting football at all levels, and and the Houston Oilers were a very popular team. We had a number of terrific players, you know, uh, our skilled guys, you know, the Warren Moons of the world. We had a Lorenzo White as a running back. Our receivers were outstanding. So we had a lot of high-profile players as well as some uh, exceptional offensive linemen, two of whom were in the Hall of Fame, uh, Bruce Matthews and uh, Mike Munchak.
1: Bruce Matthews had been a Houston Oilers since 1983, and he had seen the team through booms and busts. And in 1991?
2: I was right in the middle of my career and felt like I was getting better every year. And We had a good offensive line. We had good players in the skill positions offensively, and obviously Warren Moon was getting it done very well at a high level, at, at a Hall of Fame level. Um, and defensively, we were very... Uh,
1: Salty as well. So unlike the Eagles, the Oilers had a healthy quarterback, and that quarterback was Warren Moon. Before joining the Oilers, Moon played five seasons for the Canadian Football League. His stellar performance up north caught the eye of the NFL, and after a bidding war, the Oilers signed Moon. His spiral was a sight to see. Fans say it was the prettiest throw in the NFL. But as number one for Houston, he led the run and shoot. Here's a clip of Warren Moon talking about his role in the scheme.
4: Starting from the first snap of his rookie season, Moon's stellar play quickly rejuvenated the Oilers and their fans. In the run-and-shoot offense, Moon became truly dangerous.
2: Once we get on track, we're going to be very explosive, and we're going to be a, a team that everybody's going to fear, I think.
4: With pinpoint passing and amazing range, Moon was the heart of a Houston team that was one to reckon with for nearly a decade.
2: Moon on a... Moon's play the middle, give it to the bottom, scores! beautiful play. What play it? faking by
0: Warren Moon.
1: So with Moon as their leader, the Oilers were lighting up scoreboards using the run-and-shoot offense. Oilers head coach Jack Party refined his offensive scheme while he was coaching at the University of Houston. But what exactly was the run and shoot?
4: We also had a unique scheme that had some uh, very uh, explosive principles built into it that uh, is, uh, been referred to as the run and shoot offense. And it enabled us to exploit any defense that gave us a misalignment or someone was sloppy in their technique. Everything was really built around the possibility of going for a for the knockout blow, for a long throw, the fact that it inherently had the opportunity or the potential to go deep made it a very explosive offensive approach, and forced every defense that we faced against to be very disciplined. Because if they were a little bit sloppy in their, you know, their technique or their, their fulfillment of the responsibilities, uh, we could make them pay uh, dearly.
1: For those of you who need a quick primer on the inner workings of the scheme. Here is Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast host, Fran Duffy, with a quick breakdown. So, the run-and-shoot was an offense that was developed
5: back in the 50s and 60s by Coach Tiger Ellison, but it was really popularized by Coach Mouse Davis, and that was a coach out at Portland State. And as with most football concepts, it filtered its way up from college to the NFL, and coaches Jack Pardee and Kevin Gilbride, they were both big believers in that scheme. And for the Oilers, that meant they consistently spread defenses out with four wide receivers. Now, that in itself was rare during that era, but... The run and shoot Oilers were also doing something that no one else was doing at that time in the NFL. Their receivers were reading coverages. So if a defender went deep, the receiver stayed short. If he went left, the receiver went right. If he played underneath, Well, they were going to get run by for a big play and maybe a touchdown. Think of it like pieces on a chessboard. Every other team in the league was playing with pawns and knights and bishops. The receivers had a route to run on a specific play, and they ran it. No ifs, ends, or buts, but... The Oilers, they were playing with queens all across the board. Their receivers had the option to go in any direction they wanted to as long as they were running into the open field and away from the opponent. Defenses could not figure out how to stop that scheme because of all the route adjustments. Everyone tried to contain them, but no one could.
1: Well, not until Bud Carson. But how did the players view this quick strike attack?
2: We put a bunch of gaudy numbers up on the. Scoreboard with our run and shoot, the league hadn't really caught up with it yet, and uh, I think the big thing was, you know, it it was a good offense. Obviously, the the remnants of it you can see in every offense now, but we were very novel in what we were doing because that's exclusively what we did. We didn't have a tight end on the roster. We didn't have a fullback on the roster. And we figured if we could give Warren Moon enough time that our smaller wide receivers would find a way to get open with their quickness.
1: Even down in Houston, Norman Brayman's decision to replace defensive guru and head coach Buddy Ryan with Rich Kotite during the offseason was on John McClain's radar. McClain was also keeping an eagle eye on the Bird's feared defensive line
3: at the time i'd always been a big buddy ryan fan just from watching buddy through the years coach defense and then of course with the bears that magical 1985 season buddy ryan is still along with mike ditka that's the only time two coaches have been carried off the field after a super bowl victory that showed how much the bears Thought about Buddy, and then, of course, the Eagles hired him the next year, and Buddy's motto was, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. They had a lot of versatility, and then when Buddy was fired and Rich Cotite was promoted, you know, they had the great defense, and you had Cunningham, you had McMahon back backup. Nobody still thought a lot of their offense compared to the defense. The Oilers had a really good defense, but they were considered an offensive team. The Eagles had a great defense, and they were considered a great defensive team, even though the offense was good enough to help them have a, a, a winning season. I think they were 10-6, and six, but they didn't score many points. But they didn't need to when you had a defense as powerful as the Eagles
1: had. Clearly, both the Eagles and the Oilers knew the December matchup was going to be a real test. In 1991, sports journalists had a lot more access to the teams they covered than they do today. John McLean was able to get to know players in their unguarded moments and see how the home team was preparing.
3: I spent a lot of time in the Oilers dressing room during the week, before and after practice, talking about the players and their focus. They're focused with Kevin Gilbride as the offense. Kevin is still around. He was longtime coach of the Giants. And he was supposed to come up with a plan that would somehow neutralize Reggie White as much as he could by going the opposite way. And if Reggie switched over to the other side, they knew automatically to go to the opposite side. Whichever way
1: Reggie went, they went the opposite. The run and shoot was making waves across the league, not in just Philly. As Ray Didinger recalls, the Oilers were the ones to watch. They were a sexy team.
6: I mean, they were doing things offensively uh, that no one else had done before. And there was a real feeling, and even people in football circles were saying it, this is the new wave. I mean, this is, this in five years, every team in the league is going to be running this offense. What they had in place was actually the wave of the future. This is the direction the NFL was going. And the question was, could the Eagles' defense, which really kind of represented old school sock 'em sock-em-in-the-mouth football, Mm -hmm. which was going to prevail. Was it going to be the new era of football, or was it going to be the Stone Age of football? (laughs) For just fans that just wanted to see a good football game, that was there. But if you were a real X's and O's wonk, and somebody that really kind of got into the strategy of the game and the matchups and everything, I mean, this game was irresistible. I was in Houston that week, Mm -hmm. covering the Oilers, interviewing the Oilers, leading up to this game. And they were super confident going into this game. I mean, they they knew they were good. They knew they could move the ball and score on anybody. And they just thought nobody could beat them at home. And even though they they would say, yeah, we're looking at the film of this Eagles defense, and they're good. They're really good. They're physical. They're fast. They're talented. But I remember interviewing Haywood Jeffries, who was on his way to a 100-catch season. Mm-hmm. And Jeffries just looked me right in the eye and said, there's no defense in the NFL that can stop us. None
1: that sounds like potential Bolton board material you're right it was but could the old school eagles defense mighty as it was hold off warren moon and the oilers run and shoot offense consistency is what warren moon seeks now that a division championship is only one win away the oilers have
5: the number one passing attack in the nfl but for the run and shoot to fire cleanly it's warren moon who must be on target
2: There's no question that the focus of this offense is on my position. In order for this offense to play well, I have to play well, and I realize that every week out.
5: A crucial game for both the Eagles and the Oilers.
1: Going into the House of Pain game, the Oilers were 9-3 and were undefeated at home. The Eagles went to Houston with a 7-5 record. They had won four straight, so the Birds had some momentum heading to Texas, and they still had arguably the best defense in the NFL.
0: The greatest football team. We take the ball from gold to gold like no one ever seen. We're in the air, we're on the ground, always in control. And when you say the honors, you're talking to us. We're the.
1: Now, let's head back to the Astrodome.
6: The Dome finally opened on April 9th, 1965. When close to forty-eight thousand fans came to see the first indoor baseball game ever played, it was an awe-inspiring sight, which excited even those involved from the very beginning. It
4: was uh, loud. It was uh, it was you know at one one time considered the the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, it was you know circular in nature. It, lo- it looked from the outside like a an enormous spaceship. Uh, it was all silvery and what have you and Uh, the the sound in it would be uh, incredible. Of course, that was our home field, so we loved it. Uh, But it was as loud as you could imagine uh, when things were going well for the Houston Oilers. uh, The place would definitely be rocking.
1: For those of you who are asking how the Astrodome got the nickname House of Pain, let's turn to John McClain. In
3: 1990, they had an outside linebacker named Robert Lyles, and Robert Lyles was a captain, and before a game against San Diego, when he introduced himself in midfield, he told the Chargers captains as he shook hands, welcome to the House of Pain. And Robert, who was a martial artist, and he, they work out at, at dojos. So he a dojo is called the House of Pain. So that's how the nickname of the
1: Astrodome
3: became the House of Pain.
1: Filling the stands at the Astrodome will be some of the most passionate fans in the NFL.
7: My name is Willem Dika, and I run the uh, Houston Oilers Love You Blue Tribute Facebook page. I grew up in Houston, and as a kid, my my sandlot football friends and I became interested in in football during the Oilers Love You Blue period. And um, I, I remember very distinctly when I was a little kid that the Oilers lost two consecutive uh, AFC Championship games, and they were welcomed back twice on a sunday night by tens of thousands of fans who jammed into the astrodome and they had these pep rallies both times and i remember witnessing this as a kid and i was just you know i was hooked Mm
1: In the early 90s, Willem was going to school and living in Washington, D.C. Not wanting to be out of touch with his team, he devised the solution.
7: I actually uh, had a a good buddy of mine uh, who worked at the uh, old Houston Post. The Houston Post doesn't exist anymore. I had the the entire paper. The you know paper paper the analog paper sent to me uh, every day in D.C. so that I could I could keep up with the uh, Oilers. Yeah, it was a lot more difficult back then trying to keep up with your with your favorite team.
1: Now that's a fan. So while Willem was getting ready to watch his Oilers play the Eagles in his D.C. apartment, Ted Party was back in Houston. His dad's team had suffered a tough loss on the road the week before during a cold and snowy game in Pittsburgh. But Ted was optimistic about the upcoming Monday Night Football game.
0: It was a best-on-best matchup. Back in those days, Monday Night Football was the showcase game to be on. And so I was glad to come back to the Astrodome, where it's 72 degrees, where I knew that that the team would have home field advantage big time. All the sort of behind-the-scenes thoughts about the game was that this was going to be Houston's showcase game to show how they could dominate against the number one defense in the NFL.
1: Next time on Return Game, House of Pain Game, presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. It's game day. We go into the Astrodome and onto the field. You don't want to miss this.
2: So going into this game, it was really a a battle of wills. I'm sure they thought they were going to throw the ball all over the map on us. You know, and we had doggedly determined that they weren't going to do anything against us. So it was a high-intensity game. Add fuel to the fire. It's on Monday night. You know, back then there was there were no Sunday night games and no Thursday night games or even Saturday games towards the end of the season. So the creme de la creme game was actually the Monday night game.
1: You have been listening to Return Game House of Pain Game presented by NovaCare Rehabilitation. I'm Rob Ellis. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of Eagles Entertainment and is produced and edited by Buffy Gorilla with sound design and mixing from Peter Kelly. And Eagles, thank you to all of our guests for sharing their stories. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a five-star rating. It will help other people discover the podcast. If you have ideas for topics we should explore in future seasons of Return Game, please leave us a comment. Eagles Entertainment produces several other great podcasts that you may enjoy. And we'd love if you check us out at philadelphiaeagles.com forward slash podcasts. During this time, as folks are choosing to stay home, NovaCare Rehabilitation is offering tele rehab right from the comfort of your home. For more information, go to NovaCare.com. NovaCare, the power of physical therapy. See you next time.